0: I was meeting with the Sunday school teachers, and I do that every Sunday morning, and kind of give them a, a brief uh, overview of what I've been talking about. But when we were meeting with the worship team pray, Jeff Harrison's our bass player. We had to comment I think it's so true—it's true about all of Scripture, particularly in this passage—is that um, no secular document that was trying to make a hero look good would ever have included the story of David and Goliath. Right? So, in Jeff's mind, this is, this is testimony to the fact that, that this this is an inspired document. I mean, it doesn't get much more raw than this. And uh, it's kind of, you know, I asked the teachers this morning, I said, how many of you, first of all, are familiar with the story of David Baptist? And how many of you have heard somebody preach on it? And uh, a number of them said, yeah, we're familiar with the yeah, other people preach on it. And it's uh, one of those passages that they sort of hope that you never have to preach on huh? the reality is that uh, here it is, it's a series on David, and uh, I'm going to talk about this this morning. So, um, my prayer is that we'll be able to listen here and apply uh, this to our lives. Well, during my years in ministry, I have been involved in a number of difficult situations, and uh, I think all of us, whenever we're in full-time ministry or not... Um, life can be difficult at times and situations can get sick at times. Uh, my first ministry, pastoral experience, was attempting to comfort a family of a 17-year-old favorite high school girl who committed suicide um, one week after attending the young life camp I was part of Some of you may remember the story, it's a very popular student body president in high school. Christy Gage was her name. They didn't have any church affiliation. I was the closest thing to a pastor that they knew. and So I had to meet with them and uh, try to help them make sense of what it happened. And also I ended up doing the funeral. And, uh, one of the most difficult things I've ever done personally. Uh, so I sat with another family as their teenage daughter told them that she was addicted to drugs and alcohol and had nearly lost her life over the previous weekend. I've confronted sexual misconduct in the church. It's one of those things where you say, oh, God, I never signed up for that. I just wanted to preach and teach and have fun. And I've listened to a variety of people recount the events of their painful childhood, and even their damaging childhoods. Stories of Physical, and emotional abuse, um, a variety of things. It's one, one of the burdens, I guess, of, of my, my job. And yet at the same time, it's me an incredible privilege for me to be brought in on people's lives on like that level. The most heartbreaking and destructive events that I've ever witnessed over the years have been friends and colleagues falling in into adulterous relationships. It keeps happening. And I bet if I were to pull you, and you were to talk about your families or your friends or people you've worked with, you would have stories to I keep seeing people fall, getting involved inappropriately, and I wonder why. I know why. I mean, I understand here why it happens. There's a variety of reasons. But I still ask why. Why do people do it? Why do single people get involved with married people? Why do married people get involved with married people? Why? Why? What causes a person to trash his or her marriage, or his or her life? All that they've worked for, all that they've worked for, for a transient, A few moments of pleasure, really. Because it kind of comes down to that. Why do people do that? Not even godly leaders are exempt. In fact, I would suggest that godly leaders, spiritual leaders, are perhaps even more susceptible to sexual sin. Take David, for example. We've been talking about him for the last four weeks. Israel's hero, one of the greatest personalities in all of Scripture, the greatest king that Israel ever known, the man after God's own heart. Coming up, he fell for Uriah's pretty young wife, Bathsheba. You may know the story. You may not know the story. It's a long one. I'm going to try to encapsulate it. And in fact, if you're looking at the sermon notes this morning, you're like, how the world is going to get through all this? I'm not. This is going to be a two-part, hopefully, really bad. Okay? Or maybe not. But I don't know that is. So, fear not. We'll get through this first part. But anyway, David, David here, he fell for this young woman about Sheba. I love the way this passage starts. It happened in the spring at the time when kings go off to war. It happened in the spring at the time when kings go off to war. David was killing some time in Jerusalem. deserved it. He put in his time, right? So there he was in Jerusalem, and we read that one evening he was walking around on the roof of his condom of the Pearl District. Oh, no, sorry. Um room his palace in Jerusalem. And he looked down on the neighboring courtyard, and he saw a young woman taking the back. Now, I have to tell you something. I read a lot of stuff this week. I pointed the finger at Bathsheba and said, she seduced David. Right? I just want you to know, I believe that's a bunch of fun. No, there was no indoor plumbing in Jerusalem. People took baths outside. This story, as much as anything, is a story about the abuse of power. He was the king of Israel. She was a young woman. He took advantage of her. Okay, that's another story. He sees her being in the bathroom, and the passage says she was very beautiful, very beautiful. David was sick. He sent someone to find out about this beautiful young woman, one of his friends, one of his servants. Whereupon, by the way, I found this interesting, uh, this friend attempted to head off this dangerous situation. This person evidently knew that this was going in a bad direction. And so he says to David, isn't this Bathsheba daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. She was a married woman, is what this guy was saying to David. And not only that, David, she's married to one of your old war buddies, Uriah. You did that with him. He's a friend of yours. But David would not be denied. He sent messengers to get her. One poor choice led to the next. He slept with her, and later we're told that Bathsheba sent for to David. She was praying. David knew that he was in big trouble. Adultery was a serious sin in Israel, even for a king. In fact, it required death. But being a man of action, He scheme to uh, divert the consequences that was there. up. He sent for Uriah, who was out fighting war, hoping that while he came home to not, not make a report on how the war effort was going, that David would simply send him home and say, You know, you worked hard, Uriah. Why don't you go home and leave home? Hoping course, that he would sleep with her. She sorry break then? So there would be no surprise. He was home after all. But it didn't happen, he didn't go that way. It says that Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace. He was a hardened, battle weary warrior. And there was no way knowing that his men were sleeping in tents out of the battlefield that he would sleep at home with his wife. So he slept in front of the palace. So scheme number one didn't work for David. So he came up with another one. He invited Uriah to St. Jerusalem for a few more days where he intended to wine and dine In fact, he intended to get him drunk. And at that point, he sent him home to Uriah. that Shiba. And the third, but this plan didn't work either because Uriah was too committed as a soldier. So we read this one brief sentence. in Chapter 11 that says, Uriah did not go home. At this point, David has to be a little bit concerned, right? He can't get Uriah to do what he wants him to do, and so in desperation, he devises a final fatal scheme. He puts out a contract to Uriah's essentially. he orders General Joab to place Uriah in the front line of the fighting excuses. No, Goliath. it does that, right? Uriah in the battle. Joab, the general, is no dummy. He says this is way too obvious, and so what I'll do is I'll put it in another place where fighting is more fierce. He sure does that. the why this is Exactly happened. Why the is there. When the news reaches David, he muses, "Ah, the sword devours one as well as him. the other." In other words, such are the fortunes of the world. Doesn't seem to be overwhelmed. Guilt, or remorse, or sadness. And Bathsheba hears about her husband's death, and <coughs> briefly mourns, and then she becomes David's wife, and gives birth to his son. So David moves with inappropriate haste, <laughs> thinking that the marriage would put a legal, perhaps moral end to the affair. But God knew what happened. And we read in this passage that God was displeased what David did, done, which was God was just God didn't like it. A year passed. A year passed. David deteriorated physically and emotionally. It's funny how he <coughs> sins do that to his It's It, it show. He later described his feelings in Psalm 32. This is what he said, when I was silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. From day and night, your hand, O oh God, was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as a deep sun. Anxiety, zapped energy, and depression, and deep. Well, try as we might, and some commentators, some biblical commentators try. There is no way to candy code or to mitigate what David <coughs> has done. There's no way you can justify what he's done. This man, after God's own heart, hear the irony here, has become a seducer, an adulterer, a liar, and a murderer. Israel's ruler is now ruled by sin discovered the truth that St. Augustine later articulated. And I think this is an interesting quote. The punishment for sin is sin. The punishment for sin is sin in other words. The more we delve in, right? The more corrupt we become, the more screwed up we are, the worse it gets. It's a cycle. It's a vicious cycle. Well, eventually, David owns up to what he's done. Through the prophet Nathan, in a parable about a rich man who sees another man's pet lamb, David is brought face to face with his sin. He buries his face in his hands, and he cries out, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replies, But the Lord has taken away your sin. We're not going to die. David's credit. He doesn't try to justify himself. He doesn't offer excuses. He acknowledges what he's done. And God forgives him. David would write later in Psalm 32, God, I acknowledge my sin. To you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave me because Even though God forgave him, David, for the remainder of his life, suffered terrible consequences. He paid dearly for the few moments of pleasure. His political career, his family, his life came unraveled. For all its promise, the story of David is really a tragic story. He reached the remainder of 2 Samuel. See what happened to his children? God forgives. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've become. God forgives everything. That is truth. God forgives. God forgave David. Reading this account. David and Bathsheba, and watching and hearing about friends and colleagues who fall into adulterous relationships, leads me to one conclusion, and that sounds simplistic to you, but I want you to hear this. One conclusion, moral collapse is a process. Moral collapse is a process, or as one writer says, it's rarely a blowout. It's more like a slow leap. The result of a thousand small indulgences and choices that we made. I don't know anybody. I've never talked to one person who's told me, you know, I woke up today and I thought, today looks like a good day to have. I've never done that before, so today's the day. Why not? It doesn't happen that way. It doesn't happen that way. People transition into extramarital things. Single people married people, transition. And there seems to be an inevitable sequence of things happening. As I share these with you, and this is where I'm going to end today, brother, As I share these things with you, here's what I would like you to do. I want you to be completely honest with yourself and ask yourself, ask God to speak to you and say, am I anywhere in this sequence? And if you are, you need to do something about it. see these events unfold in David's story, and I see them far too often in the lives of people that are alive. It begins with attraction. Other people, people on the opposite sex. We're involved closely with people. It's not so much lust as it is infatuation. Although you could argue that in this story, it's lust. David sees this beautiful young woman and he wants her. I suppose that's possible. In most cases, it's infatuation that can bring us down. We find ourselves drawn to someone who seems Really sensitive, right? Really caring, really in tune with who we are. Someone who really seems to understand us. Someone who understands us perhaps better than our spouse does, and we find that attractive. We're drawn to them. We're seduced, and I believe that this kind of attraction leads, by subtle degree, subtle degree, to something deeper. Now, let me say this about attraction. It is not unusual to be attracted to someone that you're not married to. We're human, right? We meet people all the time that we find attractive, physically, in a variety of ways. But there is a huge difference between acknowledging that attraction and on it. It's not a sin to be attracted to somebody, to be drawn to someone when we take it to the next step very problematic. Attraction then becomes fantasy. Imagine what would it be like to be married to this person? Imagine what it would be like to, to do things together. We imagine ourselves with that person and it feels good. It certainly feels better than what we're involved in at the moment. Maybe my marriage isn't everything that I want it to be. Maybe it's kind of you know, it kids. When we're around this person, we say to ourselves, you know, I haven't felt like this in years. Or I've never felt like this. Have you noticed how fictionalized affairs always things so, right? Think about some of the movies. I'm not here to bash movies. But really, um, it always seems to work out right? The affair is always justified. It always seems to have a happy ending. And what you don't see is how it destroys people and families and marriages and how generationally it reaches out and kills people. That's what you don't see. Some of you that are sitting here may be in families where you have gone through this kind of thing and you know exactly what I'm talking about. It is incredibly destructive. But in the movies no one ever seems to get hurt that's a lot. That's a lot. Fantasies soften us up and they erode our convictions. Once this happens, we truly begin to listen to our longings. And our will to resist, to flee, to run away, goes away. And at this point, we are in a very dangerous spot in our lives. Very dangerous spot. But then there's the meeting, the interaction. Sharing of inner conflicts with another person who is not your spouse or who's married to someone else, sharing hopes, dreams, marital disappointment, and other deep hurts. With this kind of inappropriate sharing, the relationship begins to shift. It is a red flag when you're interacting with someone and they begin to tell you all about their inner self. About the hopes that brings him to disappointment in America. I have a single friend who came very close to getting involved with a married person. And she said to me, you know, he just needed someone to talk to. And I was there. And I just listened to him and I, I tried to encourage him and be helpful. Pretty soon I found myself attracted to him. Attraction becomes the need for love. And then it becomes the need for physical time. Yielding. Like someone reminded me this morning, at this point, bit by bit, we've gotten to this point, point. and so when it comes to time to act on all these things, it's hard to know. And then there's the need to justify the affair. When you've given in, when you've had physical contact of some kind, and we usually blame someone or something, right? It's my insensitive spouse. It's my parents who didn't raise me properly. It's someone else's fault that I got involved in this relationship. Or... It's the incredible pressure that I feel at work. I just needed an outlet. And I met someone who talked to me and who listen. This was my job. This was my spouse. Wrongdoing. Blame other people. Everything needs to be made to look good. And people go to an extravagant extreme to weave the story together so it looks like they're justified. But our hearts know, I believe, that we're followers of Christ. There are those moments when we long to set things right but it seems too painful. Even though it seems too painful to go on, it seems even more painful to stop and to deal with whatever it is stop. And when we continue to go on, our hearts become out of single heart and insensitive. And we don't care if it gets hurt as long as our needs get met. Now, we would never say that. You would never say that. I'm going to do whatever I want to do because I don't care about anything else. All I care about is having my needs. But that's what we do. That's what people do. Finally, it comes out. Inevitably, this stuff comes out. First, we deny everything. I didn't have sex with that woman. I'm so But yes, nothing is built with. But it's so human. Right? We deny everything. There was no one else, really. But but I no, there's there's, there's, there's no one. And then we changed to our tune. Well, yeah, I was attracted, but it was just a platonic thing. We just had a few drinks together and kind of hung out. And finally there's no place to hide. So we have to own up our When our seams have been opened up, have you ever been in that place in your life where it feels like you're torn open and the whole world is see When your guts have been ripped out, when your evil deeds have been exposed, God reminds us of His cross, His forgiveness and His grace. God doesn't leave you in the midst of these difficult situations. He speaks to you time after time after time. And he wants to remind you that he you loved, you forgiven, that his grace is available to At this point of all things, God begins to remake us, to make us new. But there's only one way to know this forgiveness, and that is. To have known as the awfulness of what we've done. The Bible calls it repentance. Not a word we use often. But it means to literally stop in your tracks, turn around, and go in a completely new direction. That's what it takes. There's no way around it. We have to come to a point, truly, where we hate where we hate what we've done, and we turn around from it in disgust, because until we do that, we're not going to be free. Until whatever it is that you're involved in, or have been involved in, makes you sick to your stomach to the point that you want to throw up, you're not know going to be sick. David learned this lesson before he sing about it in a few minutes sacrifice to God is a broken spirit and a broken spirit and tried That's what God is. God uses our sin and I don't know how he does this to awaken our need for his grace. He softens us and makes us more susceptible to his shaping in our lives than we've ever been before. When we fall, we discover at some point that we've fallen into his arms. God takes everything. Takes the worst of us, and he redeems it, and he uses it, and he changes us, and he makes us new people. That alone convinces me of the truth of the gospel. God can take somebody like me and transform my life. It's got to be true. George McDonald, I put a quote on the front of the program from George. I love George McDonald. He was C.S. Lewis's mentor, spiritual mentor. Lewis McDonald died in the Lewis. This is what he said. This is not a quote when I was when a man or a woman repents and humbles himself or herself, God says to lift them up. And to lift them up higher than they've ever stood before. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. God takes the worst we can be, the worst we can do, and he uses it to make us part of the good things promised. I don't know how that happens. But it does. It's ridiculous. It is incredibly ridiculous. But he does that. Jesus Christ is the God of fools and killers. He's truly the God of chances. Next week, I'm going to talk about the following brotherhood. How we can avoid this inevitable stuff, but this is who God is. So as you hear this, I I I just wonder, you know, are you someplace in this process? If you are, are you willing to kind of stop? Maybe even hearing this for the first time today and to pay attention and to turn around. We've some time for prayer, a silent prayer, and I want to encourage you to talk honestly about it. This is between you and, and you Confess your sins, to confess your desires, your difficulties, whatever situation you're in, and ask Him to empower you and change you. For some of you, you may need to ask Christ to become your Lord. You. But let's pray inside together. Bless your sins to God. He knows you, he loves you, he wants you more.